Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of As Yet Unexplained. In this six-part series, we will also be looking at the stories behind some of the most famous, mysterious tales of the strange, paranormal and unexplained. Is it possible that a plethora of secret missions to the stars were launched by the Soviets just prior and during the space race? And what of the purported cosmonauts that were left floating in space when their missions failed? If you like what you hear, please consider liking, subscribing or even writing a review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. Lost Soviet Cosmonauts To fully appreciate the events of the Judica Cordiglia brothers, it is best to refresh our minds of some of the details and attitudes of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic's space program. The program was started in the 1930s and was concluded in its original form in the early 1990s. As is the way of things, the winners have the upper hand in telling the story of their victories, and sometimes what was once a great accomplishment can fade into insignificance as other greater achievements overshadow the previous. A Brief History of the Soviet Space Program The Soviet space projects were responsible for many space feats in their 60-year history, but had initially concentrated its efforts on cosmonautic exploration and exploring the manufacture and use of launch vehicles. The Russian system meant that these goals were assigned to various design bureaus and each bureau competed for each project and the accolades that its success would bring. The Soviet space program was responsible for the R-7, the first intercontinental ballistic missile, which would in turn lead to progressing the idea further and introducing humans into the equation and inventing human spaceflight. Before that step, the first artificial satellite, Sputnik 1, was launched on the 4th of October 1957 at 7.23pm. This led to the start of the space race between the Soviet Union and the United States. On the 3rd of November 1957, Laika was the first animal to orbit our planet within Sputnik 2. A dog right out of the world's attention today. In a masterpiece of propaganda timing, the Soviet Union announced it had launched Sputnik number 2, carrying a live dog, reportedly history's first space traveler. On the 13th of September 1959, Luna 2, after following a discreet path to the moon, impacted the moon's surface. The spacecraft was equipped with sodium gas so a cloud could be generated and the spacecraft's movement could be visually observed. Luna 3 was also launched in 1959 and was the first mission to take photographs of the far side of the moon. 
The Soviet Union was to start secretly with their push towards manned spaceflight with the Vostok program, whereas the Americans commenced their first steps with their own Mercury program. The Mercury capsule project is the nation's manned orbital spaceflight program being conducted by the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. The project involves a continuing broad research program. The Mercury capsule shape was determined from intense scientific and engineering investigations using a wide variety of technical equipments. Between May 1960 and March 1961, the Vostok program launched some pre-programmed missions which were designed to fully test the capabilities and endurances of the Vostok rocket. Of all these pre-mission flights, the most successful, and there were many failed flights, were the final two flights which consisted of Korobel Sputnik 4 and Korobel Sputnik 5. These were complete successes. 19 this was the break that the Soviets were waiting for. They could now send a crude capsule into space. Yuri Gagarin was selected to be the first person to fly a capsule in space. The flight happened on April the 12th in 1961 and would last a full 108 minutes and his mission was to orbit the Earth for slightly more than one orbit. Doris Day, one of the most unforgettable of our century, the point of departure for man seeking to reach space. And this man, Yuri Gagarin, major in the Soviet Air Force, is the first to cross the frontier into the unknown of space. 27 years old, quasi, handsome, highly trained, married to a medical student, the father of two girls, occupation, cosmonaut, the world's first. He has now traveled faster, higher, and farther than any man in the history of this planet, and no other man can yet claim the same occupation or distinction. Soviet space accomplishments are numerous, but for the period we are looking at, the following are notable. On June the 16th, 1963, cosmonaut Valentia Tereshkova was to be the first woman in space and orbit the Earth in Vostok 6. In March 1965, the Soviets were responsible for the first spacewalk, with cosmonaut Alexei Leonov in Vostok 6. In March 1965, the Soviets were responsible for the first spacewalk with cosmonaut Alexei Leonov on Vossod 2. Well, I think the Russians are ahead of us, but there, there's no reason for panic because there's never any solution in panic. As tensions mounted between the two superpowers due to the space race and the Cold War, secrecy became a top priority with the Soviet space program, and their entire mission rosters were given classified status. No information got in or out unless it was approved, and all failures were swept under the carpet. Any failure would look terrible for the Soviet superpower, so they simply did not happen. Propaganda was an important tool during the Cold War, so announcements of mission outcomes were delayed until success was certain. 
It was not until the policy of glasnost during the 1980s was implemented by Mikhail Gorbachev that information regarding the space program was finally declassified. Illusion. After the success of Yuri Gagarin's flight, he was immediately paraded as a great hero of the people and even had statues and streets named after him. Ever since the Russian word Sputnik gained a firm foothold in the languages of all the peoples of the Earth, it was clear that the first space flight would be made by a Soviet man. But who would be the man to accomplish this unprecedented exploit? He's a Soviet man who was trained by a vocational school, a technical school, and the Air Force. But there was another Soviet pilot that kept deep in the shadows that was privy to information that the general public were not aware of. And that was Sergei Ilyushin. Ilyushin was an experienced test pilot and was an obvious choice for the space program. His family history and connections would ensure his place in the history books as his father was a designer and builder of World War II fighter and bomber planes and also a deputy leader within the government. Ilyushin Sr. was also friends with Khrushchev, the country's leader. Ilyushin did not like the idea of flying in space as the controls, trajectory and environmentals would all be controlled on Earth via mission control. Ilyushin was a man of action and decided that the space option would render him just like the lab rats and dogs that had gone before. But he had a change of heart and was placed in a special space training course. It was April the 7th, 1961, a full five days before Yuri Gagarin's successful flight that Ilyushin was launched into orbit. The whole affair was done in secret, and after three successful orbits, Ilyushin had lost contact with mission control. It was standard procedure with the manned Russian craft that the pilots were to eject the craft during re-entry, when it was safe for them to do so. Ilyushin was unable to eject as he was rendered unconscious and crash-landed. Ilyushin had survived but was severely injured. According to a declassified document of unknown origin, Ilyushin was placed in a space capsule named Rossiya, and the flight took place on Friday, April the 7th, 1961. A guidance malfunction was responsible for the mission failure. The events were never publicized, and still to this day, we have nothing but the word of various people to go on. Western reporters had learned of the events, but Russian authorities refused to respond to Western stories about Ilyushin's flight. It was even claimed by the Soviets that Ilyushin was in hospital in Moscow as the result of a car accident and not a failed flight. Ilyushin was later sent over to China for rehabilitation within a hospital for over a year. After this failure, it was decided that Gagarin was to be launched into orbit and after his safe return back to planet Earth, 
the whole publicity machine began to roll out the success story. According to the editor of the Encyclopedia Astronautica, a reference website of comprehensive data concerning vehicles, technology, astronauts and flights, it is his opinion that the entire early history of the Soviet manned space program has been declassified and we have piles of memoirs of cosmonauts, engineers, etc. who participated. We know who was in the original cosmonaut team, who never flew, who was dismissed, or who was killed in ground tests. Illusion is not one of them. Torre Bert. With homemade electrical equipment, two young Italians are keeping tabs on Russian satellites and making some startling discoveries. There is an eerie possibility that a long-dead Russian astronaut is today hurtling silently through space at thousands of miles an hour, the victim of a Soviet space shot that went wrong. This was the intriguing byline by J.D. Ratcliffe to his April 1965 article Italy's Amazing Amateur Space Watchers that was published within the pages of Reader's Digest. The story would reveal to the public the strange macabre story of Achille and Giovanni Battista Giudica Cordiglia, who had set up their own experimental listening station outside Turin and started picking up early Soviet space communications on their equipment in the late 1950s. The brothers had set up their amateur listening station within a disused German bunker at Torre Bert. All their equipment was scavenged and cobbled together. With these limited resources, the pair claimed that they were able to monitor transmissions from the Soviet Sputnik satellite, which was possible as signals from Sputnik meant for the Soviet mission control also ended up broadcasting across many frequencies. The pair also claimed to have picked up signals from Explorer 1, which was the first American satellite launched on the 31st of January 1958. This assembly, which is the actual payload for the satellite, contains both transmitters, the necessary circuits for the impact microphone, which will detect the collisions with meteorite particles, and a Geiger counter to measure cosmic ray intensity. And the heartbeat of Laika, the Soviet dog blasted into space. Using their jury-rigged equipment, they were able to record and log flight information, such as telemetry, visual data, and voice recordings. We were having difficulty receiving signals on 108 megahertz, 137 megahertz, 148.800 megahertz, and 405 megahertz using dipole arrays. The signals were too weak. We designed an antenna based on our experience and we actually built it ourselves in the courtyard next to a machine shop. We had to disassemble the whole thing again to get it out of the courtyard, stated Giovanni Battista in an interview in 1999. The antenna that was used to receive the signals was even shown at the 12th Technology Expo in Turin and it won a prize, a gold medal. 
The receiving equipment inside the octagonal reflector could be easily replaced with another covering a different frequency. The antenna weighed 1.5 metric tons. The main structure was made of steel and mesh. The internal portion, which outlined the octagon, was made of aviation-grade aluminium tubing. For over 10 years, the antenna was the largest in Italy. With our antenna, we received some extraordinary transmissions. Images from Soviet moon probes, images from the Cosmos satellites on the 185.800 MHz frequency, pictures from Lunik 4, a probe that the Soviet authorities claimed had failed its mission, and even the pictures of an American long-range bomber while it was being flight-tested over New Mexico. These pictures were taken by a Soviet Cosmos satellite and relayed to a ground station in the USSR. I believe this was in Baikonur. We received about a dozen photographs that were promptly confiscated by Italian military intelligence, both negatives and copies. Two months later, the US unveiled to the world details of their latest strategic bomber. The brothers had no intrinsic input into either Soviet or American space programs. They were merely observers who happened upon a mystery. Transmissions It was on the 28th of November 1960 that the brothers heard a report that an East German radio observatory had managed to intercept an unknown radio signal that was broadcasting on Soviet frequencies. Excited by this announcement, the two brothers decided to listen in for themselves. After an hour of listening to radio static, the brothers then recognised a hand-keyed SOS message that was becoming fainter and fainter, emanating from the static noise. It seemed as if the signal was becoming fainter as it was moving further away from the Earth. In an interview in March 1999, Giovanni Battista was asked whether the initial statement printed in the Reader's Digest article regarding the dead cosmonaut travelling through space was accurate. He stated that The statement is related to the signals that were received on November the 28th, 1960. On that occasion, we received the words SOS to the whole world in Morse code. We confirmed the presence of the Doppler effect in amounts very similar to what we later detected during reception of signals from such moon probes as the Lunix. If what they heard was genuine and not a case of mistaken identity, then it could be possible that the signals could have been a manned Soviet space probe which had possibly suffered some sort of mechanical malfunction and was drifting further and further into the void of space. Giovanni Battista further stated that tracking measurements showed that the vehicle's elevation to be in almost a stationary position in the sky, and clearly the signal was not coming from an orbiting satellite, but rather from something that was moving away from the Earth. The signal was very weak. The Morse code message, which may have been a recording, was heard by several witnesses. 
The brothers developed a theory that perhaps at the time of re-entry to Earth, the retro rockets, which were normally activated after the capsule had made a half-revolution along its vertical axis, may have ignited improperly. They surmise that the capsule may not have executed the altitude reversal at the time of retro-rocket ignition, gaining speed in the process. Starting at a speed of about 8 kilometers per second, the spacecraft may have been pushed into a higher orbit, even reaching sufficient velocity to escape the Earth's gravitational pull. If my recollection is accurate, the escape velocity required to reach the Moon is about 11.2 kilometers per second. The Morse code message was broadcast in English. We believed it was a desperate plea for help, addressed perhaps to the Americans. After a while, the signal stopped. I remember that on December the 2nd, the Soviet authorities announced the launch of Sputnik 6 and almost immediately announced that it had been lost, stated Giovanni Battista. The story was picked up with interest by a Swiss-Italian radio station and the brothers became the station's space experts. In total, the Giudica Cordiglia brothers have released nine recordings over an observational period of four years. The aforementioned incident and subsequent tragedies formed the recorded collection. The brothers have generated a large amount of public interest with their alleged findings that has lasted for more than 50 years, despite there being many detailed rebuttals of the brothers' claims. It was in February 1961 that the brothers detected a signal and heard audio of what is now dubbed the Lost Cosmonaut. These communications were believed to be from a top-secret Soviet Union mission and according to their cardiologist father included the eerie sounds of a person in the middle of cardiac arrest with the person's laboured breathing indicating suffocation. The Russian Federation subsequently made an official announcement two days later that an unmanned probe had failed to properly re-enter Earth's orbit. In April of 1961, the brothers also claimed that they had recorded a capsule orbiting the Earth three times before finally re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. This occurred days before Yuri Gagarin's historic flight. Could this have been the disputed flight of Ilushin? The brothers would, on the 12th of April 1961, record and observe the first official manned orbit of planet Earth by Yuri Gagarin. In May 1961, the brothers yet again managed to pick up another secret Soviet transmission. This transmission was broadcast from an orbiting spacecraft as a cosmonaut makes an appeal for help whilst they are going out of control. October was to see the final recording of 1961, as a cosmonaut lost control of his spacecraft, which appears to veer off into the void of deep space. Of the nine recordings, the brothers made only one from 1962, which is available. That transmission was received in November and contained data that suggests that a space capsule misjudged re-entry and was subsequently bouncing off the Earth's atmosphere and out into space. The Lost Female Cosmonaut 
Perhaps one of the most chilling entries comes from November 1963. The recording purports to be of a female cosmonaut dying during a difficult re-entry. As can be heard, the voice starts off calm, and as the recording progresses, it becomes more frantic. It is assumed the transmission ends due to a failure during the re-entry process. What follows is a translation of the recording, and the recording itself. Due to the archival nature of the audio, there has been some conjecture as to the preciseness of the translation, but this version is widely regarded as correct. Giovanni Battista stated in an interview that We also picked up two male voices. The most tragic transmissions are those involving the female cosmonaut. One of the last recordings made by the brothers was in April 1964 and consisted of another unfortunate cosmonaut being killed when their capsule is burned up in the Earth's atmosphere on re-entry. These are extraordinary times, and we face an extraordinary challenge. Our strength, as well as our convictions, have imposed upon this nation the role of leader 
in freedom's cause. Finally, if we are to win the battle that is now going on around the world between freedom and tyranny, the dramatic achievements in space which occurred in recent weeks should have made clear to us all, as did the Sputnik in 1957, the impact of this adventure on the minds of men everywhere who are attempting to make a determination of which road they should take. Since early in my term, our efforts in space have been under review. With the advice of the Vice President, who is Chairman of the National Space Council, we have examined where we are strong and where we are not, where we may succeed and where we may not. Now it is time to take longer strides, time for a great new American enterprise, time for this nation to take a clearly leading role in space achievement, which in many ways may hold the key to our future on Earth. It was the famous speech by then-President John Fitzgerald Kennedy in 1961 that put the first wheels of the space race into motion. And it was not too long after that that the Americans became embarrassed by the lack of progress they had made. Whereas the Soviets had come on in leaps and bounds and even admitted to a series of accidents in the very early days of their space missions. In some cases, these proved fatal. Despite this admission, the Russians have maintained that these accidents have been ground-based and not occurred in space. Even the USA had casualties in the early days before the successful Apollo missions. For example, there is the incident of January the 27th, 1967, where the command module of Apollo 1's interior caught fire and burned during a pre-launch test on launch pad 34 at Cape Kennedy. This is a CBS News special report. This is Mike Wallace at the CBS Newsroom in New York. America's first three Apollo astronauts were trapped and killed by a flash fire that swept their moonship early tonight during a launch pad test at Cape Kennedy in Florida. Virgil Gus Grissom, 40 years old, one of the original Mercury astronauts, the first American astronaut to go twice into space. Edward White, 36 years old, the first American to walk in space. And rookie astronaut Roger Chaffee, 31 years old, training for his first space flight, Apollo 1, scheduled for February 21st. These three astronauts were aboard their spaceship 10 minutes from a simulated liftoff at Cape Kennedy when the fire hit at about 6.30 tonight. Astronauts Grissom, White, and Chaffee, who were inside the command module, were sadly asphyxiated and burned within. Is it possible that with the Cold War secrecy and the events of the space race, that the Soviets simply did not want to talk about their failures and admit any form of weakness on a world stage? Would this perhaps tarnish the achievement that Gagarin was the first person to achieve Earth orbit and return safely? But there are people who doubt Gagarin's flight and that it could have been staged as to the conspiracy to murder Grissom, White and Chaffee. But that is a subject for another show. Since the 1960s, the recordings have raised many questions as to their provenance. Examples of this can be found from the fact that audio transcripts of the recordings 
revealed that none of the cosmonauts followed any kind of standard communication protocols. For example, the basics, such as identifying themselves when speaking or even using the correct technical terms. It is also worth pointing out that the language that is used in the recordings is disjointed and not correctly constructed, contradicting the fact that the Soviet space program used highly well-educated Russian native speakers from aeronautical backgrounds. A more common problem with the recordings seems that there is a lot of mechanical inaccuracies. This can be best illustrated by the fact that a lot of the cosmonauts can be heard saying that they are leaving Earth's orbit and therefore heading into interplanetary space. It is well known the manned Vostok 3 KAs were not capable of reaching the required escape velocity due to the fact that their intrinsic design never contained the required secondary burn propulsion units. Propulsion units that were built powerful enough to leave the gravitational forces of the Earth's orbit did not begin to appear until the test firing of the RD-270 engine in 1969. And it was not until the N-1 moon rocket in 1974 that the Soviets built a spacecraft that was able to reach open space. It is not possible to veer off into deep space without assistance of a firing rocket engine capable of reaching escape velocity. After the Iron Curtain fell and a few carefully chosen pieces of secrecy were finally revealed to the world, diaries and memoirs of Soviet managers, cosmonauts and engineers at the centre of the space programme were published. These personal and official documents were sold at auctions and purchased by Western museums and institutes. Some of the Soviet Union's greatest secrets were laid bare for all to see. Some of these chosen few included the failed moon landing program, the needling disaster, and the experiments with radiological and biological warheads. Several cosmonauts who had passed whilst training in accidents were finally identified. But importantly, there was no evidence, confirmation or denial of the lost cosmonaut. The brothers have subsequently been subjects of several radio and television documentaries, magazine articles and even a BBC Radio 4 dramatisation of the events. In later life, Achille became a cardiologist, while Giovanni Battista worked for the Italian police, providing phone taps in investigations. So, were the brothers merely accidental observers to secret events that they were not supposed to be privy to? Or were they amateurs, desperate to cash in on the new burgeoning industry? That was space. As with all countries around the world, there are secrets buried deep in vaults. Perhaps there is still a lot more buried deep regarding the Soviet space program. Until we can definitively say that we are in possession of the complete records, without any Soviet editing, only then can we confirm or deny the existence of the lost cosmonauts. Links to our Facebook page and email address are in our bio and the show notes, so feel free to get in touch, tell us how we are doing and even suggest future episodes that we can cover. Next week we will be looking at the hauntings and the unearthly goings-on at 50 Barclays Square. 
Thanks for listening. My name is Richard Daniels. 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 And I am the archivist for the Occultaria of Albion. The Occultaria of Albion is a publication dedicated to exploring some of the strangest and most bizarre locations across the country, where hauntings, curses, cryptids, and more have all been reported. I am now custodian of its archive, and am gradually exploring many of the lost files in order to re-release them. You can find the case files which are now available at occultariaofalbion.com The Occultaria of Albion can also be found on YouTube and as a podcast. Go deeper and join the fan club for exclusive content. Go to patreon.com forward slash occultaria. Remain vigilant and remember the wolves of weird. Oh, loose.